The following audio is from Life Journey Church. More information about Life Journey Church is available at www.lifejourneyva.com. So let's take our Bibles and we're going to go on and turn it to, back into Hebrews chapter 4, which is where we are last week, this week, and we'll be in Hebrews 4 again next week. If you're new with us, my name's Walt. Uh, hopefully I had a chance to meet you. If I didn't, uh, man, uh, it, it's, I'm, we're so glad that you're here. We're glad that you've come to worship with us, to, to open God's word, and to, man, to just see this amazing work that Jesus has actually done for us. We're looking at this, uh, we, we, this little mini-series in Hebrews 4. We're working through the entire book, but in chapter 4, uh, there's, this, there's, there's, there's this major, major thing happening where the writer of Hebrews is saying, listen, this call to salvation is a call to enter and rest. And most of us, let's just be honest, when we think of the call to salvation, it's a call to enter and get busy. Enter and start climbing that treadmill of of performance in order to make sure that God remains happy with us. And so Hebrews 4 cuts to the core of this thinking that we can actually create closeness with God based on our own behavior. And again, we have in our minds this thinking that by doing good, by praying more, by going to church more often, by even reading our Bibles, we actually gain traction in getting closer to God. And listen, these are great things. Listen, these are awesome things. We need to pray. We need to read. We need to come to this gathering and hear the word of, 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 of the gospel. But to suggest that doing these things or any things actually gets us closer to God is very dangerous. Think of it this way. If we can get closer to God because of our good actions and conversely further away from God because of our bad actions, then what in the world did the blood of Jesus actually do? If we can control based on our behavior, our closeness or our farness, that word, then what did the blood of Jesus actually do? So no, the truth is so much better and the truth actually sets us free. The truth sets us free from all this sort of religious baggage that we in our minds have. And I hope last week, if you were with us, I hope somebody had one of those aha moments. Uh, One of those aha moments when you saw how we just, how, how we're actually able to rest from the idea of creating our own forgiveness or creating our own righteousness or even creating our own intimacy with God because Jesus has actually done the work of creating all these perfectly and completely. We now rest from our attempts of trying to create this closeness with God because the work of creating it is complete in Christ. But can this be real? I mean, let's just face it. Can this be real? Can this good news of Jesus really be this good? Can the good news be this good? Well, I think what we're going to see in the next little section of Hebrews 4 is that it gets even better. And this is what we're going to look at starting in verse 11 this morning. So pick up with me in verse 11. We only are going to look at three verses today. Last week we looked at like 10, and so it's going to be a little bit quicker, I think. And so uh, we're going to wrap things up, and, and I encourage you, if you want to stick around, and help tear things down. In fact, let me just say this. If you're looking for a really cool place to plug in, and start volunteering, the setup and teardown teams would be a great fit. 
especially if you don't have young ones in the house anymore or maybe you don't have young ones in the house yet, getting here early, staying a little bit late once a month, that would be awesome. Ricky Kane is our acting uh, support team director, if you want, uh, uh, coordinator. He's raising his hand back there. Uh, we, we'll have somebody at the volunteer here table at the end of the service. Uh, if you can come one Sunday a month a little bit early or one Sunday a month, you can stay a little bit late to help tear this stuff down, set this stuff up. It would totally rock. It really would. Okay, so it's a great place to plug in. All right, so verse uh, 11, let's start here. So he says, uh, therefore, okay, whenever you hear a therefore, read a therefore, you got to know what it's there for. <laughs> yeah, that's right. You got to know what it's there for. Okay, so therefore, okay, because, and, and, and I really encourage you, if you weren't here last week, to, to at least listen to the podcast, or if you were here, try to remember back what he was saying last week. Because we can rest from our tr- of trying to create closeness with God, because Jesus has already created it. That's the therefore. Therefore, because we can rest from trying to create closeness, trying to create cleanness, because Jesus has cleaned us, if we are in him, he has created close to God if we're in him. Therefore, since that's the truth, let us be diligent to enter that rest. Now, this is one of the biggest paradoxes that I know of in Scripture, uh, even the biggest paradox in, in life. You know what a paradox is? It's like where two statements kind of, or, or one sentence kind of sounds like it's, you know, impossible to reconcile, but when you look at it after a while, it's like, wow, that makes perfect sense. Here's the paradox. Let us be diligent to enter rest. Let us be diligent to enter rest. This word diligent is how the New American Standard Bible translates it. And it's a good way of translating this original word in, in, in Greek. But diligent sometimes to us gives the idea of just like mental attention. So like tomorrow morning when your kids are about to run out the door to get on the school bus to go to school, you might say, hey, make sure that you're diligent today in school. And that idea is the idea of just like pay attention, sit up straight, you know, focus on the teacher, you know, all those kinds of things. Don't get distracted. A lot of times that's what we think of when we think of the word diligent, like just the mental side of things. But the original word that was used in the original language for this word that the New American Standard Bible translates diligent means something much more. In fact, this word actually means uh, literally exert uh, energy, exert energy. So you see how the paradox is coming a little bit clearer now? Exert energy to enter rest. Sounds a little silly. The King James, if you've got a King James Bible out there, the King James makes it a little bit clearer where it says, uh, let us labor, therefore, to enter rest. Doesn't that sound silly? Let us labor to enter into rest? Laboring to rest? That sounds strange. Let's exert energy in order to rest. Well, I think before we go any further, we should just ask a simple question. What in the world is he saying? How, how do we exert energy in order to end up resting? And if we're not careful, we're going to look at this and we're going to think that he's saying uh, that entering into this rest of Jesus requires our effort, our work, our, our energy to generate our own righteousness. And once we do generate enough, then we can actually rest. Well, look, that's, that's definitely not what he's saying. He's not saying, hey, let's work and work and work so that we can get to a point where we can then rest. For four chapters now, Hebrews has been building this airtight case that Jesus is better in every way than any sort of Old Testament shadow. He's better than angels. He's better than Moses. He's better than Aaron and Levi. He's better than bulls and goats. He's even better than the entire temple system, including the uh, Mosaic law. So no, Hebrews isn't all of a sudden shifting course and saying that we enter into this rest of salvation by our efforts. 
We've got to remember who the writer was originally writing to. This letter that we call Hebrews that we have in our Bible, it wasn't written originally to Western Americans, uh, Western Christians here in America. It was written to first century Jews who lived their entire lives, listen, working, striving, laboring, exerting all their energy in order to gain forgiveness, exerting all their energy in order to create righteousness, in order to get themselves close to God. These religious Jews were dedicated to the religious system. They were passionate about doing everything they could to purge their sins and generate righteousness and holiness in their own lives. And they took it very, very serious. So serious, they took these 613 laws and they actually created what we call today traditions or rules to make sure they didn't violate one of those laws. Here's an example. If one of the 613 laws is, and it's not, this is an example, okay? I didn't know they had microphones. That if, if, if one of the 613 laws is, thou shalt not touch a microphone, let's just pretend, okay? Can we do that? Gwen likes to pretend. Um, Daddy, let's pretend that I'm daddy and that you're me, you know, and I'll tell you what to do. <laughs> uh, but le- so let's pretend that this is a law. Thou shalt not touch a microphone. Well, what they did, the, he- the Hebrew, the Jews, the dedicated, making sure they didn't want to violate that law, they created what we call traditions that said, don't even go within 10 feet of the microphone. You see that? So they wanted to make sure they were so passionate about not touching the microphone that they increased that parameter, if you will, to, to a point of don't even go within 10 feet of the microphone. And so they were so concerned about not holding the microphone, they set up additional rules about not even getting close to the microphone. And you know, if you think about it, it sounds pretty smart. It sounds pretty logical. You know, we, we do the same things in our own lives. We set up boundaries to make sure we don't go too far, whether it's with dieting, whether it's with dating, whether it's with maybe even things like pornography, or whoa, maybe it's even things like shopping. Black Friday's coming up, right? You got your boundary set up so you don't spend your mortgage, you know, on that big screen TV or whatever. So we know that there's dangers out there, and so we build a fence in front of the danger to make sure that we don't even cross the fence so that we're sure that we don't actually end up doing that thing that we don't want to do. So it sounds logical. We do this all the time, and I'm not here this morning I don't have time to kind of bust on this system, this thinking, but here's what happens. Let me cut to the chase. What happens when our focus is set on avoiding sin? What happens when the focus of our heart's mind, or the mind of our heart, mind, our mind's eye, what happens when we're set and thinking all the time on avoiding sin? Most of the time, when our focus is set on sin, even the avoidance of sin, a lot of times, maybe not all the time, but a lot of times we end up sinning. Let me, let me show you what I mean. Um, did you know that pink elephants are detrimental to your relationship with God? Did you know that? Pink elephants are detrimental to your relationship with God. In fact, if you dwell on, if you think on a pink elephant, it might actually separate you a little bit from God. Let's not even talk about how it's going to screw up your marriage, right, your kids. If you think about pink elephants, then your, your kids will actually uh, run from the Lord. So do not think of a pink elephant. Do not think, don't dwell, don't even pretend to think about a pink elephant because if you do, then who knows what's going to happen. What are you probably thinking about right now? You see that? A pink elephant. Thankfully, pink elephants are just figments of our imagination and they won't actually cause us to fall away from grace. 
But that's the idea. By focusing on the sin, even the avoidance, don't even think about a pink elephant. What tends to happen is our minds start dwelling on the sin rather than on who? Jesus. And you won't find the apostles saying ever, dwell on sin, even the avoidance of sin. What do you hear the apostles teaching? Dwell, focus, set your mind on Jesus, the author and the perfecter of our faith. So here's what I'm trying to say. The first century Jews had spent their entire lives focused on avoiding violating these 613 laws that were given some 1,400 years prior to the point where they even created these buffer zones to make sure they didn't violate it. You might have heard of this. The law talks about not even touching Gentiles. And so what the Jews would do, and they did, is they walked hundreds of miles out of the way in order to avoid actually walking through a Gentile settlement just to make sure they didn't actually come in anywhere close to a Gentile. Their hope was in obeying the law perfectly. Their hope was in exerting enough energy and effort to get it right. They could stand before God at the judgment seat, having in their minds created enough righteousness within them. We might be familiar with how the Apostle Paul talks about this. The Apostle Paul says that he was the best of the best when it came to keeping the law. He, in fact, he says that he was found blameless in regards to the law. That means that none of his friends, none of his peers could look at his life and say, you know what, there's an area where you're failing. He was blameless. He was really, really good at managing sin and modifying behavior to the point where no one, no one could point out sin in his life. But Paul said that all this striving to be perfect by the law was what? Anybody remember the term he used? Dung in comparison to the reality of Christ. Dung. We know what dung is, right? It was dung. You see, Paul was so sold on the religious thinking that we can work hard enough to earn our spot with God. He was sold on that. The harder he worked at it, the more self-righteous he became to the point where he thought he was actually good to go with God. That is until God, right, appeared to him on the road to Damascus. And his eyes were open to the reality of Jesus. But the same religious thinking permeates, even in our minds sometime today. By our doing and not doing, we think we're earning points with God. So that's the context of who he's writing to, these Hebrews, these Jews, who had spent their entire life working to gain favor with God. So now let's look back at this passage with that context. And what he's saying, this is what I'm hearing him say. He's saying, let us labor, let us exert energy, let us strive to enter rest. And what I hear him saying is, look, and remember the writer of Hebrews is Hebrew himself or herself. And so they say, look, I understand Our whole lives have been about working and working to gain and gain traction with God. If you really, listen, this is what I hear him saying. If you really want to work at something, if you really feel the need to exert effort, and I know you do, because it was ingrained in me, I hear him saying. If you really have to strive at something, strive, labor, exert energy, watch this, at resting in the work that Jesus has already done for you. Direct all that energy of working in order to get close. Direct it all at resisting that thinking because you are close because of Jesus. Our minds are so programmed with this religious thinking that it's really hard 
It's really hard. The, the, the exertion of effort, even the laboring uh, to, to, to grow closer to God is so ingrained in us that it's hard to actually rest and believe in what Jesus has done. Resting in the work of someone else is hard. But you know what? We do it every day. Every time you cross a bridge, guess what? You are resting in the work of someone else. Every time that you fly in an airplane, you're resting in the work of someone else. Every time you drive a car, every time you fill in the blank. I mean, almost everything in life, we're resting in the work of someone else. And what I hear the writer of Hebrews saying is like, look, guys, I know it's not natural to trust or rest in the work of someone else when it comes to your own righteousness, but you must. You must work at resting in his work for you. So why is this so important? Why does he start off this, therefore, let us be diligent. Therefore, let us focus all of our energy, exertion of energy, to actually rest in what he's done. Well, he explains it. So that no one will fall. The idea is no one will fall short. So that no one will be excluded through following the same example of disobedience. Why resist everything in us to want to create our own righteousness with God? Because if we continue in unbelief, we will fall short. We will fail. Our own righteousness is like filthy rags, according to Isaiah. And we already looked at it, that Paul says that all of his self-righteousness was like dung. So on our own, our best efforts, our best energy being exerted at creating righteousness on our own is, is, is described as filthy rags covered in dung. That's, 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 not, that's not good sounding. But here's the good news. And here's what the writer of Hebrews is writing to these Jews saying, listen, good news has come. If you're willing to change your mind from thinking that you can create your own righteousness and create your own forgiveness and actually turn to Jesus and trust in him, we're able to rest. We're able to rest from trying to create our own forgiveness and our own righteousness because he created it for us. So in Christ, we don't fall short. In Christ, we have everything we need in order to be as forgiven and as righteous as we need to be before God. And, and, and he's alluding to, though through following the example, the same example of disobedience, he's referring back to their forefathers, and we talked about this a lot last week, who did not trust in the promise of God. This word disobedience, the, the, the King James uses the word unbelief. This word disobedience literally means willful unbelief that opposes itself to the gracious work and purpose of God. So Hebrews is begging the readers, and I think us today too, as we read this, to not continue in a willful unbelief that opposes the very gracious purpose of God. God has extended his grace to all who would simply change their minds and believe in Jesus. And I'm echoing this begging today. I'm begging us, if there's anyone in this room this morning with an unbelieving heart, an unbelieving mind, please, listen, redirect all of that energy that you were expending to try to create and gain your own righteousness. Redirect it to resisting the need to earn and just begin trusting in Jesus. Well, he explains this much further in verse 12. And he says in verse 12, 4, and remember, uh, it's coming up on the screen, I promise. Ver verse 12, 4, and remember, when you have the word for, that's always there 
to explain what was just said. So if you're reading something that's a little bit confusing and the next sentence, next verse starts off with for, F-O-R, don't stop, okay? Because that's going to help explain the verses previous, all right? For the word of God is, now we've got to take a quick time out and we'll time back in in a second. There's two important things that I want us to make sure we're clear on before we move forward. Because he's about to list off some things that the word of God is. The first thing is I want us to go all the way back to high school English, okay? Now, I know that just, like, made somebody panic, okay? Uh, but let's just rem- go back to high school English. There's a figure of speech called simile, okay? If you're familiar with this, it's the comparison of two things using the words what? Like or as. Hey, man. Good job. So here's an example. I love watching Colin Kaepernick play football. I do. I do. If you're a Seahawks fan, I'm sorry. Yeah, you got the jersey on. I mean, ready for the game today? I'm sorry. I just love watching him play. I grew up in the 80s and the 90s watching Montana, Young, you know, Rice, all those guys, right? Clark in the back of the end zone. Like, I remember that. Like, that's what I grew up on. So I have this soft spot in my heart for the Niners, okay, just like you have for whatever, right? So um, the best way I can describe Colin Kaepernick running is this. Colin Kaepernick, if you've ever seen him run, you'll, you'll, you'll understand what I'm about to say. The guy runs like a deer. He really does. He runs like a deer. It's graceful. It's, it's, it's effortless. It's really amazing, especially his first year before the defense got smart to what he was doing. But, man, I just watched him jealous because I'll never run like that. Right? My favorite quarterback in the NFL is Peyton Manning. I grew up in Knoxville, so he's like the, the hero of the Vols, right? And so Peyton Manning will never run, you know, even in heaven, you know, <laughs> like Colin Kaepernick, right? Colin, he runs like a deer. Now, I'm not like man-crushing on the guy. I'm just saying he, he runs like a deer. If you've seen him, you know what I'm talking about. I mean, it's pretty impressive. That's a simile. Kaepernick runs like a deer. That's a simile, okay? Colin Kaepernick is not a deer, okay? He runs like a deer, all right? He doesn't have antlers, right? You know, we don't shoot them in the fall. He runs like a deer. He's not an actual deer, okay? That's a that's Simile. That's a simile. Now listen, what we're about to see here is not that. We're not going to hear the word of God is like, and then a bunch of descriptions. We're going to hear not uh, descriptions, but we're going to hear definitions. This is very important to get, okay? So what we're about to see is not the word of God is like, and then a bunch of, but the word of God is, okay? That's very important. Second thing I want to point out really quickly is that, um, What encompasses the term, the word of God? If I were to say to you, the word of God is, and you're thinking of the word of God, most of us would probably think, hold up a a Bible or our iPad or whatever, and we think of the 66 books that are between, you know, Genesis and Revelation, right? Between the table of contents and the maps, that's the word of God. And I'm not denying that. It certainly is the word of God. But remember when this was written. This was written before the 27 books of the New Testament were actually written fully written. So I can guarantee that the writer of Hebrews is not thinking about the 66 books of the Bible because the New Testament wasn't even finished yet. I can guarantee that the writer of Hebrews, when he says the word of God is, is not thinking about 1st, 2nd, 3rd John, the book of John, Revelation, etc. Because those probably weren't even written yet when he wrote this. So what is he referring to? The word of God. The word of God. Well, I could be wrong on this. It won't be the first time, 
But I think he's referring to something very, very specific. Let's remember the context. Context is king. The writer has been quoting over the chapter 1, 2, 3, and now 4. He's been quoting several key passages from the Old Testament, building a case that the day would come when the people of God would be able to enter an, an internal rest in Christ. He quoted from Genesis, from 2 Samuel, from Psalms, and from Isaiah. And he even recounted the exodus of the unbelief of the, of the people coming out of Egypt. Like a skilled lawyer, Hebrews is building an argument that the eternal plan of God was to provide a Messiah that would remove the sin of the world and offer righteousness as a free gift. There would be no more trying to create forgiveness. There'd be no more trying to try to create righteousness. There would be rest from all these works upon trusting in Jesus and Jesus alone. So listen, I submit to you that the term, the word of God, is not just simply a reference to 66 books. The the 66 books is the word of God for sure. But in this context, I believe he's referring specifically, specifically to this message, this word of rest in Christ. This message of rest, this truth that we are called to enter and rest, not to enter and strive, I submit, is the what encapsulates this term, the word of God here. This reality that we're called to enter and rest and not enter and work to get closer and closer and closer to God is what this term, the word of God, is encapsulating. This substance, this matter, this utterance of God to enter and rest and not enter and and try better to do harder, etc., I would submit, is what this idea of the word of God, in the context of what he's saying. In other words, the specific word of God that Hebrews is specifically referring to is the word of God of enter and, let's try again, of enter and rest. Now, by saying that, I'm not trying to say that the 66 books of Genesis to Revelation aren't the word of God. I'm not trying to say that at all. I'm just saying that in the context of this specific writer at this specific time, it can't include that because they weren't all there yet. In fact, I would say that all 66 books have the same message from beginning to end of enter and rest. So let's see real quickly how Hebrews describes, not uh, how, how, sorry, how Hebrew defines the word of God. Remember, it's not the word of God is like, saying the word of rest, this word of resting in Christ is. Now let's look at this. He says the word of God, this word of resting in Christ is living and active. Remember, this isn't a simile. The word of God isn't like something that's alive or like something that's living. It is active. It is living. And sharper than any two-edged sword. Again, just remember, he's not saying it's like a sword, but he's saying it is sharper than the sharpest blade that you know of. To them, a two-edged sword. What's the sharpest blade you know of? That's what it's sharper than. Maybe a surgeon's scalpel, maybe whatever. It's sharper than even that. He says the word of God, this word of rest in Christ is piercing as far as the division Look at this, of soul and spirit on one side is the idea, and joints and marrow on the other side. And we'll come back to what this means in a little bit. And the word of God is, this word of rest is able to judge or able to discern the thoughts and the intentions of the heart. So there's a lot going on here, way more than we have time to cover in our last 10 minutes. 
But let me try to hit the major thing of what's happening here. There's a lot of imagery here of cutting and opening and exposing the inside. It even says that this word of rest is so powerful and so sharp, it's able to divide soul and spirit from joints and marrow, referring to the flesh. Spirit from flesh. It's even able to judge or discern the true nature and the true condition of the heart. The heart here is the core of who we are when we strip away the flesh. It's not talking about a pumping muscle in our circulatory system. It's talking about the core of who we are. Paul calls this in his writings, the inner man, the real you, when we strip strip away the flesh and bone. Now look at this next verse. It's even more descriptive, verse 13, and we're going to come back and try to explain what this is saying. But verse 13 says, And there is no creature hidden from his sight, the eyes of God. But all things are open, right? So when this word of rest comes, it opens and laid bare. Some translations say naked to the eyes of him, him being God, with whom we have to do. Well, to do what? Well, the context is the one that we have to give an answer to, the one that we have to give an account to. Some translations even go as far as to say to the one that we have to have a reckoning with. Reckoning, that's a, an accounting term. To the one that we have to set an account straight with. And we're going to do something different. I'm going to go ahead and give us our journey marker. If you're, if you're new with us, our journey marker is kind of like, what's, what's, how can we put all this into a simple thought, think on it, dwell on it, talk about it even more in our community group, etc.? And then I'm going to explain, based off this journey marker, what I hear Hebrews actually saying, because this is awesome. So our journey marker this morning is simply, the word of rest reveals what we really trust. This word of rest, which I'm saying is what he's talking about, this word of rest, this word of God, which is the word of rest, is re- it reveals what we really trust. Here's what I hear Hebrews saying. Again, I could be wrong, but here's what I hear Hebrews saying. Judge for yourself. This word of rest, which he's been talking about for four chapters now, this word of rest, this invitation to rest in Jesus' already completed work for you will expose the true nature of your heart. It will show you what Jesus already sees in you. If you hear this message, this invitation to come and rest in Jesus from all of your works of trying to get closer and trying to get clean and trying to create intimacy, when you hear this word of rest, this invitation, it will reveal the core of who you are. This message of resting in Christ will cut away, listen, all the bogus, outward, frivolous, self-righteous junk that Isaiah calls filthy rags and uh, Paul calls poop. He says it will reveal, cut all that away and reveal the true heart of the issue, pun intended. And this is the, when this good news of resting in Jesus and Jesus alone is heard, it cuts. It cuts to the core of our being. It challenges the most basic of our motives. It shows you that you, no matter how hard you try, no matter how hard you work, no matter how good your intentions are, You, at your core, are exposed, naked, unable to hide from God's clear view of your real condition. This word of rest is so active, it's so alive, that in an instant you are able to see the real problem. 
The problem is not the sinfulness of our flesh. Our flesh will always contain sin. The real problem is the dead spiritual heart with which you and I were born. When you hear this invitation to rest in Jesus by transferring your trust from yourself to him, it exposes the heart of the issue. No matter how many good deeds are done, no matter how much effort is placed in keeping even all 613 laws, no matter how much effort is placed in improving yourself or improving others, the real issue that this word of God, this word of rest reveals is this. Are you trusting in your own work or are you trusting in the work that Jesus has done for you? Done completely, done perfectly, done eternally. This word of rest is active, it's alive, it's sharp, it exposes our true spiritual condition. It lays us open so that what we see at our core is what God already sees. It shows us that no matter how much work we've done to make us think that we're good, if our trust remains in ourselves or anything other than Jesus, it shows us that we actually are relying upon ourselves or something else and we remain dead in our sins, to which one day he says, there is an accounting. Do you see that? Do you see how this word of rest is active? It opens us up to show what we really are trusting in. Do you see how this word of rest reveals what we really trust? Do you see how this message, this invitation to rest in Jesus cuts us to our core and exposes us for what we really believe? Now listen, if we have come to the point where we have heeded God's word, that is, we have obeyed God's command of believing in Jesus, then listen, we have nothing to fear. We have nothing to fear. We who believe in Jesus have entered into his rest. We now can rest from all of our attempts of trying to create righteousness and our forgiveness because Jesus has created it for us. For those who believe in Jesus, those who have trusted in him, there is no accounting left. There is no reckoning left. There is no judgment left for those who believe in Jesus. That is, those who have entered into his rest. Jesus' own words on this, I think, are pretty, pretty clear. Look at John chapter 5. Uh, I think it's verse, what is it? Verse 24. It says, truly, truly, I say to you, he who hears my word and believes in him who sent me has eternal life and does not come into judgment, but has passed out of death into life. There is so much bogus teaching out there that says that believers one day will stand in judgment. Perhaps you've heard this before. This is bogus. Jesus himself says, there is no judgment for those who are in me because you've passed from death unto life. In fact, in John 3, he makes it really, really clear that the judgment itself is death. And the entirety of the human race has been judged because we have been, we have been placed in our physical birth in Adam. And the rescue that Jesus has offered is that by believing in him, we escape that judgment. We don't continue, we don't come into judgment because we've been actually rescued out of the judgment of death and have been placed into life. The only way to escape this judgment is by resting in Jesus, by trusting in what he's done. So listen, no matter how much somebody tries to tell you that believers, people who are in Christ, are going to give a reckoning, are going to be judged for what they've done or whatever, listen, it's bogus. Just listen to what Jesus says and just stay with that, okay? 
There is no accounting. The account is settled if we're in Christ. So what is it that Jesus has actually done for you? Well, you likely know the answer to this, but just, just real quickly. Jesus is God in the flesh. In order to experience the death that we have at our physical birth, God had to become one of us and suffer death that we have tasted in Adam in order to free us from that death to sin. And this is what he did. A couple of weeks ago, we're going to celebrate Christmas. A couple of weeks from now, we're going to celebrate Christmas. And in this celebration, it's the celebration of God becoming a man in order to taste our death so that we could have his everlasting life, his eternal life. At the cross, a lot of things happened, but at least two things. At the cross, all of our sin was removed, and all of God's wrath against our sin was removed. It was satisfied. No more sin on our account, so no more accounting if we trust in this, and no more wrath. And I've said this before, and I'll say it continue, but as our, at our physical birth, our inner man, the real us behind the flesh was actually joined to the flesh, actually joined to sin, like a marriage. And Jesus died to sin so that we who trust in Jesus have also died to sin. Our marriage ended to sin that day when we began to trust in Jesus. We didn't just divorce sin. We actually died to it. Our old man died so that the new us, the new person that we now are in Christ, could now be joined not to sin anymore, but to God himself in Christ Jesus. And this is the work that we are called to rest in. We are called to enter into this work of Jesus by trusting in him that we actually died. That we died to sin so that we could be created new. Paul calls it a new creation in 2 Corinthians 5. This new creation is now free from sin and full of true righteousness. So how much effort does it take to rest? How much working is it going to take for us to rest in this work of Christ? Well, I guess it takes however much effort it takes to trust in Jesus. You see, for some of you, trusting in Jesus is really easy, right? You hear this message of resting in Jesus, and like Hebrews just described, it cuts you to the core, and you realize, oh my goodness, look at who I really am. Apart from Christ, I need Jesus. So some of you, it's really, really easy. But for others, let's just be honest, it's really hard to trust in Jesus. Trusting in Jesus is difficult. You put so much energy and effort into creating your own system of righteousness and your own system of forgiveness that you find it really, really hard to trust in a free gift of forgiveness and a free gift of perfect righteousness. You think you can do it on your own. For you, let's just be honest, it's really, really hard to trust in Jesus. But let me encourage you like the writer of Hebrew does. When you hear this word of rest and it reveals what you really rest in, what you really trust in, what do you see? When you hear this call to rest in the work of Jesus on your behalf and it cuts you to your core and you think, man, who do I really trust in? What do you see? What do you see? Do you see yourself trusting in Jesus for your forgiveness and for your righteousness? Or do you see yourself trusting in yourself or in something else? And here's the beauty. The beauty, remember how Hebrews said that this word of rest, this word of resting in Christ, it's piercing as far as the soul and the spirit. The idea is on one side, 
and the joints and marrow, the flesh on the other side. Remember how we read that? By trusting in Jesus, listen, this is so cool. He actually cuts you away from your old, from the flesh. He actually cuts your old dead spirit away. Your old dead man, the root, the real root of your spiritual problem dies. And he gives you a brand new heart, a brand new life, a brand new spirit, a brand new heart that's no longer joined to sin, it's no longer even joined to your flesh, joints and marrow, but it's actually joined to Jesus. So here's the deal. Our band's going to come up in a second, or come up now. We're going to sing some songs. But here's the deal. This word of rest, it really does cut to the core of what we trust in. Because what Hebrews is saying is saying, listen, you, you my friends, my countrymen, you, uh, those of us who we've placed our entire hope and all, all of our lives in this working to gain traction with God, the, re, the real message, the real hope is that we turn from that and we actually embrace the completed work of Jesus that he, in his own work, his own effort, has actually made us clean and close. God. It's very difficult to believe in. We have to let go of trusting in our own righteousness. We have to let go of trusting in our own ability to gain traction with God because we can't. We can't. And so when this word of God, this word of rest comes, it's received in one of two ways. It's received in, man, that is, I see who I am apart from Christ. I see that my heart is dead I see that the true intentions and desires of my heart are wicked and I need a whole new heart and I'm going to go to Jesus for that. Or it reveals, yeah, okay, but I can get there one day. I can try extra hard and get there. I can do enough good and and gain favor one day. And what the writer of Hebrews is saying is, no, look, there's a day coming when it's not possible to even enter there's a reckoning coming. There's a, there's a judgment coming for those who don't believe. And Jesus says, you're already in the judgment because you're already dead in Adam. And Jesus has come to bring you from that death into his life. But we must turn from our reliance upon ourselves and place our full hope in him. Can I beg you today to start trusting in Jesus? Start trusting in him. You say, how do I do that? Well, you've got to respond. You must respond to God's invitation of entering this rest with faith. You must respond. You must begin trusting in Jesus' work and no longer your own work. There's no magical prayer in Scripture. There's just simply people who hear this message. Some of them get really mad. The others, they begin to believe. And as they believe... They go and they get baptized to show this is what happened on the inside. I was dead in my sins. My old man is now dead and buried and a brand new man has come. So I beg you today to respond to God's invitation of entering his rest. Respond with beginning to trust in Jesus. I'm going to pray. We're going to sing a song or two. And, uh, and I'm going to come back up at the end and kind of wrap it up. But as I pray, as we sing, 
If there's someone who would like to talk about what it means to trust in Jesus, I'm going to be standing in the back. Jim will be standing in the back. I encourage you to come and, and talk with us. Maybe you don't want to talk this morning. Send me an email, a text message, Facebook, you know, a pigeon, you know, whatever. I'd love to talk with you. It's what we moved here to do to help people go from dead in sin to alive in Christ. Let's stand and pray. Father, we thank you for this moment. We thank you for this opportunity we have. Man, to see the work of Jesus before us, full and complete. We have the opportunity here this morning to no longer rest and rely upon our own self because there is no rest in that. It's continuous effort of trying to gain ground with you, and that's impossible. The whole law of Moses was given to show how impossible that is. But someone much greater has come and has taken away all of our sin and taken away all of your wrath. And when we trust in him, we pass from death unto life. And so, Father, this word of rest, it's sharp. It opens us, it exposes us for what we really rely on, what we really trust in. And Father, if there's anyone here this morning who, who, who sees that they are still trusting in themselves, I pray that today would be the day where they give up and they turn, they believe in Jesus so they can rest from all their efforts of trying to create their own righteousness and begin trusting in the righteousness of Jesus that is theirs by grace through faith. Father, each of us in this room know someone whom we love with all of our heart that is still trying to create their own rightness with you. God, I pray for those people, those individuals. I pray that they would see the futility, the futility of that work and begin to rest in Jesus. In his name, amen. Amen. Amen good news it's good news listen the rest does not end we rest forever in the arms of jesus but the laboring to enter that rest it really doesn't end either here on earth as believers it's easy for us to forget what jesus has actually done that he has removed all of our sin that he has given us his perfect righteousness it's easy to forget that and we digress and our thinking back to the religious mindset of when I do good, I'm close. And when I do bad, I'm distant or far again. Listen, church, make every effort to resist that thinking. Strive to rest. Work at resting. Stop working to get close because you are if you're in Christ. In fact, you're actually joined to him in Christ. Work at believing the truth above our feelings. You are forgiven. You are free. You are dead to sin and alive to God in Christ. That's what our neighbors, that's what the nations need to hear. The good news that Jesus plus nothing equals us clean and us close to God. We love you. Hope you have a great week. Come next, next week as we finish up this little mini-series of rest, uh, Enter and Rest. If you want to sign up for volunteerism, uh, Holly's going to be at the table, and you can uh, sign up in our setting up and our tearing down. That would be really, really great. And we've got some angel tree stuff happening up here with Carrie. Love you guys. Have a great week. Thank you for listening to this message from Life Journey Church. Feel free to distribute this podcast, but please do not charge for it or alter it in any way. For more information about Life Journey Church, 
visit us at www.lifejourneyva.com.